If you're not making a difference in what you're doing, I would just say, go find something else to do where you can make a difference. Thanks for joining us today as we take a look into the diverse journeys, struggles, and successes of business professionals as they give their perspectives on the impact of a business education, what they learn along the way, and where they will go. I'm Justin Zane, and this is Business and Valor. Welcome to the show. Today, I have Sarah Yu and Nicholas with me, and joining us is our special guest, Rob Malcolm. Following an undergrad in MBA marketing from USC, Rob joined Procter & Gamble in brand management, where he worked on more than 75 brands in more than 40 countries over his 24 years there. He then went on to work for Diageo, the world's largest premium alcoholic beverages company, for nine years, leading its global marketing, brand management, and sales and innovation functions. Since retiring from full-time corporate work, Rob has maintained active as an investor and board advisor to many companies and startups, from Hershey's to McLaren. He is on the Dean's advisory boards at both UT McCombs and USC Marshall and has taught marketing at the Wharton Business School before joining McCombs as executive in residency at the Center for Consumer Insight and Marketing Solutions since September of 2013. Thanks for spending some time with us, Rob. My pleasure. Great to be with you. So can you briefly describe for our listeners, what does a job in marketing entail and what are the various paths within marketing you can explore? Marketing is a very wide discipline and there's um, as many jobs as you could possibly imagine. The way I like to think about the ecosystem is to look at companies and how what they're looking for from marketing. On the one hand, there's companies for whom marketing is a central organizing concept. These would be consumer packaged goods companies like Procter & Gamble and Unilever and Colgate and Coke and Nike, things like that. And these companies, uh, marketing takes two forms. It takes a form of brand leadership or what we call brand management, um, and then takes the form of lots of ancillary marketing services in support of the brand building activities. These can be research, insights, analytics, media, social media, innovation, et cetera. But in these companies, marketing is central and therefore marketing jobs in these companies are quite coveted. For the rest of companies, marketing tends to be a function or something that they do in support of something more primary, like a technology company, which is driven by inventing better products and technologies and marketing is brought in to help understand consumer needs and then help sales and market of those products. And in these, uh, the marketing roles are myriad from communications to research to analytics to media, etc. So think of them as different types of companies, how important market is, and then different kinds of roles from generalist roles to very niche-oriented specialist roles. Uh, and I guess the third comment I'd make is there are marketing jobs within corporations uh, in support of their activities. There's marketing roles in consultancies like Boston Consulting Group and McKinsey and specialist marketing agencies. And then there's uh, marketing roles in agencies that provide services like creative services, media services, analytical services, et cetera. So I'm just scratching the tip of the iceberg conceptually, but there's literally thousands of different types of marketing jobs. So one of the challenges for a marketer is to ask the question, where do I fit? For sure, that is a lot. Thank you for sharing. Uh, looking back at your education a little bit now, what is the most important lesson about marketing that you learned during your time at USC that you found valuable throughout your career? 
Well, I was fortunate uh, in my junior year to take a, um, a course that was focusing actually on brand management. And it was taught by a former agency executive who had uh, been servicing the Procter & Gamble business. So the class actually was Procter & Gamble brand management. And in that role is where I discovered my love and passion for marketing and actually for brand management. Um, and, and what I learned about it, which made it so exciting to me, was two things. One, the leadership role that a brand manager plays in leading all aspects of growing a business. And I always like to own something and be accountable for doing and owning a business. So it's like a little business leader across a business. But then the second thing I learned was the sheer diversity of marketing activities that you can get involved in. Um, that tax both the analytical or data side of your business on your mind um, and the creative side of the business. And so I uncovered that the range of responsibilities was so large that somebody like me who has a low attention span could always find something about the job to be interested in. Thank you for sharing that with us. And you spoke a lot about the challenge of finding your fit in such a large practice such as marketing. So why did you decide to start working for P&G? And what about the company made you stay there for over 20 years? Well, it started with that class that I talked about is I just uh, found a fascination with the brand management aspect of marketing. And back in the day, when you thought about then pursuing jobs or careers with a brand management orientation, Procter & Gamble was clearly the number one company uh, for developing and training your skills in this. So very quickly, it goes to the top of your search list. And I was fortunate enough to get asked to join P&G uh, back in the mid-70s. Now, in answer to your second question, what kept me there was the work turned out to be everything that it was advertised and more. I immediately felt responsible in a job where I could make a difference. I felt that people were willing to listen to me and my ideas and my thoughts, provided I'd done my research and my due diligence and built my case persuasively. But I think the thing that fascinated me most was the quality and talent of people that I was working with, really smart, really driven, really good people. And so that environment um, was like playing on the A, the A team and a sports team of high performers, all driven to do really well. And I have to tell you, my best friends today are those friends that I formed at Procter & Gamble back in my first couple of years there. Wow. Well, it sounds like P&G really prepared you and gave you a lot of skills to work with. And it also looks like you took a big pivot in your career moving from P&G to Diageo after 24 years, at a time when I think Diageo was still quite young. So what drew you to Diageo in the alcohol industry? And how was the transition period between these two companies? Okay, that's a, that's a great question. At the, at the time, this would have been in the late 90s. Um, I was running the um, snacks and beverages business for Procter & Gamble from Frankfurt, Germany, um, in the region, the Europe, Middle East, and African region. And I actually loved those kinds of businesses. Snacks and beverages are what I call expandable consumption categories, where uh, with the right marketing, you can attract more people into the categories, not just be in a share battle within a given category. Um, so I so I found those more marketing and sales intensive, more innovation intensive businesses are the ones that I loved. And when it came time to leave and move on, you know, I started searching sort of in that territory. I wasn't looking in alcoholic beverages, you know, per se. In fact, it was one that I really hadn't considered because historically it hadn't been a high quality marketing industry. But as I was looking and had set out my criteria for what I was looking for, 
a multinational role. I loved international marketing in a big company that had great brands, that had plenty of marketing money to spend, um, that was located you know, internationally, not back in the US. And most importantly, was looking for a leader to come in and help build and transform a marketing organization. So I did join Giaggio in uh, 1999, and it was one year after the company had come together. So you're right to point out it was a new company, but a new company of old brands. And the most exciting part about it was it was great brands, but they were looking for someone to build and create a transformational marketing capability. And that was really what I was looking for to do. And I uncovered that uh, it was as advertised, and I spent nine of my happiest years leading that part of the Diageo business. So you mentioned how much you valued being in that leadership position at various companies. After being at Diageo for nine years and working up to the position of president of global marketing, sales, and innovation, what would you say was the department that was most challenging for you to lead? Well, in, interestingly, I mean, that I, when I came to Diageo, I made a decision that I had one last corporate job in me because I'd worked for a large corporation, Procter & Gamble, for 24 years. And I thought that would be about an eight to 10 year kind of role uh, before it would be time for me to move on. Importantly, for them to put somebody fresh, you know, in the role, because you can get stagnant in a role if you stay in a place, you know, for too long a period of time. It felt natural to me after eight and a half, nine years in the business to move on, because um, I then knew I wanted to do my own portfolio of activities, which I've been doing since then. The hardest part of leaving was le leaving the people and leaving so many of the young marketers and business leaders that I had helped grow and develop and mentor over the years. And, and that's the part of it uh, that I that I miss the most. And many of them uh, we still stay in touch with. Um, and it's fun to watch them continue to grow and prosper over the years since then. So after that period, what was it like to begin teaching at Wharton? How did it compare to maybe speaking at some of the various conferences that you've engaged with? Well, it, what's, what's really interesting is that I have always been known as a teacher. And I think it may be in my DNA. My grandmother was a teacher. My father was a teacher. My sister was a teacher. It turns out my daughter's a teacher. Um, and my wife had an education, a degree in elementary education, but went to work in marketing research. So I've always had this in my DNA. And I was known both at Procter & Gamble um, and at Diageo as someone who coached and taught. And indeed, one of the presidents that my successor gave to me was he wrote a poem um, about me and my years at Diageo. And it was entitled, Here's to Our Teacher. So for me, by way of background, it felt very natural. And as soon as I had retired, the head of the marketing department, a colleague of mine named Dave Reebstein uh, at Wharton called me and said, this was in February, I retired December, said, Rob, which class are you going to teach for me in September? Are you going to teach global marketing? Or are you going to teach um, advertising management? I said, give me a week and I'll come back to you. And I decided to teach advertising management because it had been a particular subject that I was passionate about. And so for me, it was just a natural, logical step of then begin sharing my expertise and learning from all of those 35 plus years, you know, with the young and next generation. And I must admit, I love working with students. I love coaching students, teaching students, mentoring students. And I'm still very engaged in doing that both at UT and, and at USC. So what made you decide to start teaching at UT? And what is your role as a member of the McCombs Dean Advisory Board? And how did you kind of start getting involved within that as well? Well, the decision to come to McCombs was really a decision to come to Austin. Um, we were living in Connecticut. 
And it's kind of ironic now to describe it this way because we had an unusually cold weekend. The, the weather's plummeted down in the you know low low single digits. Power went off. We lost our you know our electricity. Everything froze up. And my wife looked at me and said, you know, uh, where are we going to live next? Because you know we're not from here. There's no reason to stay here. So by a quick process of elimination, we got to Southwest. And I still wanted to stay in touch with the business school, so that quickly gets you to Austin. And then by coincidence, um, a colleague, Lamar Johnson, who runs the center here uh, that I'd worked with at Procter & Gamble many years earlier, put, had reached out to me to come teach a class you know, at, at McCombs and come down and do a presentation on international marketing. So um, we'd looked at moving to Austin and McCombs, and then I had an opportunity to come down and visit. And it didn't take much you know, for us to say, let's, let's go do that. And then I was able to work with... Um, Lamar and the um, in the business school to find a role where I could uh, where I could contribute, but also have an awful lot of freedom. Well, we're so fortunate to have you at McCombs, and I will say that I really do feel the teacher energy from you a lot. And so uh, we've noticed that you have carried over the teaching to the boards of numerous companies um, over lots of different industries. So, can you touch on what factors influence your decisions to get involved with these companies as well? Hey, great, great, great question. I didn't actually figure this out until I got involved with three or four of them and uh, found out what I liked and what I didn't like. And other companies and people were asking me for help. And I, I realized I needed a, fr- a decision framework. And I guess that must be the teacher in me as I like to have thinking frameworks and models that I can use to solve problems. So the one that I came up with, and it served me very well, is I will meet with anybody the first time. If I like them, I'll meet with them a second time. If I find their business challenge really interesting and one that I could potentially add value to, I'll meet with them a third time. And then after that, we'll have to do some kind of deal. And the other criteria I put against it, do I have the time to do it? So is, do I find the entrepreneur really interesting and someone I'd like to spend time with, you know, coach and mentor, be a resource for? Do I think the business idea, you know, and the model is interesting and doable and winnable? And then do I have the time? And I've done about nine of these. Seven out of nine have worked out really well. Two have not. Um, actually, three we've shut down. One of them that's been the most successful is Harry's uh, Shaving Company, which was actually started by one of my Wharton students in my first class. They, they say if you hit one out of 10 big and you hit Harry's big, you know, you're, you're doing all right. And another four or five that are doing well. And I've had, I've had three that have, that have gone underwater. And I've learned probably more from the ones that have failed than the ones that succeeded. Could you share with us an experience that you've had on one of these that you particularly enjoy? Well, my longest one running um, you know, experience has been um, with Harry's, where I was an angel investor. Jeff Rader, uh, the co-founder, was in my first class at Wharton, and that would have been in the fall of 2009. And I've been working with Jeff and Harry's for the better part of 10 years. And what I, um, what I like the most is actually being a resource for Jeff and his team. So, of course, I'm on the advisory board with five or six other very interesting people that I enjoy. But what I enjoy most is when Jeff gives me a call, and he always calls me this way, Professor Malcolm, you know, can you help me with this particular issue? Now, I never was a professor. I'm a lecturer, you know, but he likes to call me Professor Malcolm still. And so everybody at Harry's knows me as Professor Malcolm, even though I'm not. But what I like is when they bring problems and ask me for some help in solving the problems. And, you know, as I think about what do I do, 
I'm a problem solver. I like to solve puzzles and marketing is all about solving puzzles. So it looks like you're still really involved with the marketing world and just the business world in general. And you have been for quite some time now. So what is your perspective on the future of marketing and how has the process of building a brand in the marketplace changed and where do you think it's headed? Well, that's about a four hour question. So let, <laughs> let me try and boil it down you know, into, uh, into a couple of things. So um, I think the future of marketing is exceptionally bright. I've always felt that way. Um, one of the things that I'm increasingly seeing is more and more companies recognizing the importance of marketing and elevating the marketing leadership role to a C-suite role. So increasingly you'll find chief growth officers, which is a title that's used oftentimes, chief commercial officers, chief marketing officers, increasingly being part of the executive teams and increasingly reporting to the CEO, as opposed to being thought of as a function that reports sort of somewhere else. And I think what that recognizes is the importance in the marketing function of creating growth. Um, and that's what marketing really is all about. It's uncovering opportunities with consumers, finding ways to solve those opportunities with products or services, and then finding the ways to build meaningful connections and build ultimately usage and loyalty among those consumers. And that's what kind of marketing is. So let me tell you what's changed and what hasn't changed in marketing. The fundamentals of understanding consumers' wants and needs, you know, whether they be visible or hidden, and developing and conceiving of products and services that meet those needs, either unmet needs or meet those needs better than the alternatives, that has not changed and that'll never change. So the importance of psychology, the importance of insight, um, the importance of invention um, has not changed at all. The importance of strong brand positioning, having a brand that knows what it stands for and being able to communicate and articulate that, that actually hasn't changed. The how you do it, you know, has changed, really driven as much by technology changes. Uh, marketing always evolves with technology. And with the advent of digital technology and the internet, um, the whole dynamic of how brands and services or whatever it is that we're trying to sell interacts with consumers has changed fundamentally. And probably the biggest change is moving from the brand kind of having the power and sending things down the pipe to the consumers having the power. They have access to knowledge, whether you know a brand wants them to or not, and they have the ability to pick and choose what they pay attention to. So increasingly, the challenge for marketers is not only to be relevant, to be, but also to be unique and provocative because consumers only have a finite space. They're bombarded with information and they're only going to let things in that are both interesting you know, and useful to them. That'll continue to tend. Technology will always drive change. Marketing, the original marketing was word of mouth. Guess what the most powerful form of marketing is today? Word of mouth. It just happens to have socially empowered media as a vehicle to, to exercise that. Then you had print and outdoor, then you added radio, then you added television. All these things were technology-driven changes, and then mobile, then digital, et cetera. So the, the how will continue to change always. The fundamental uncovering consumers' needs, meeting them, and effectively um, engaging around them, uh, that I don't think will ever change. Definitely. And I really love how you mentioned technology because our next question is, how, how has the digital marketing been a challenge for corporations at any level and how have companies evolved to cater to our generation that is so social media driven? Well, you know, I, I, I say it, it, start, it starts in the same place, which is understanding your audience. And so um, that now how you go understand your audience and what sort of research methodologies and approaches that you use, you know, has changed. 
But for companies who have been keen in saying it starts with the consumer or the customer, and I call it consumer-driven strategy or consumer-driven marketing, it starts there again. So not only do we have to understand the consumer's wants and needs and why and how they make the decisions that they do, but increasingly to figure out how we interact and best motivate and connect in a digitally enabled world, we have to understand how our consumers consume influence. And that's an interesting way of describing it. And I, uh, this is an idea I came up with about 10 years ago. We used to plan media because we would buy media. We'd buy radio, TV, magazine, those kinds of things to reach our consumers. Then we learned about connection planning. How do we make connections? But increasingly, consumers are finding influence in all kinds of different places, in their own times and their own things. So when you think about it, if if you're in the market, let's say, for a, a new car, Justin, the thing that I have to understand is not only what you're looking for, but where you're getting your information, what you're searching for, who you're asking about, what articles you're reading, what influence are you receiving as you have your search? And that's led kind of to this first moment of truth, which is intersecting with you at that first time when you start to search and learn about something. And if I can reach you and partner with you and start to build the relations with you there, uh, then I have a chance of actually building a longer-term relationship, provided I'm being useful to you. If I'm not, you'll throw me out like a like a cheap suit. So you clearly have just so much experience in so many various fields and industries. How has your outlook on work or just life in general changed now that you're no longer doing corporate work full-time? Well, the, the number one thing, and this is what I was looking forward to when I decided to step away from corporate work to my own portfolio, is I largely control how I spend my time. Now, I got pretty good at that in a corporate environment, and I spent my time probably 50 to 60% where I wanted to spend it, but there was another 40 to 50% that was kind of required to do the job. Now I have probably 90% of my time you know, is spent on things that I want to do. And that's the thing that keeps me energized is I then gravitate to the places where I find most interesting. And I said earlier with people I find interesting. Um, and that's the big change for me. And I think so long as that is in front of me and so long as I'm um, still alive and kicking and curious, um, I think that will keep me engaged. Well, do you think you have a piece of advice that has been central to your professional or personal life that you could share with us? I do. Um, and, I, and I'm going to give you actually two. One of the things I think is applicable to everyone. And the other thing is something that's worked for me that I don't know is right for everyone. So applicable to everyone. And this is where I start with our students who come to me and say, I'd like some career advice on how to think about this. And this is to make yourself two lists, what you're good at, what really makes you special, what are your unique skills, strategic skills, creative skills, analytical skills, whatever they happen to be. Make a second list of what you love to do. When you're at your best, when you're performing at your best, what is it about that that really turns you on, that gives you that energy to go the extra mile? Then take those two lists and merge them. And and because what you're looking for is to find a career, an avocation that leverages your skills so you do it well, but on something that really turns you on and motivates you to do that. And so if you actually find yourself in a place where your skills are really useful and valuable and you love doing it, guess what? You'll be a star performer and you'll be really happy. So that's kind of the, the single piece of advice. I got to that about 10 years ago. Actually, when I was leaving P&G and looking at Diageo, that's how I ultimately made the decision to go to Diageo versus some other alternatives. The other one, um, and this is one that's worked 
for me personally is to um, seek forgiveness, not permission. And what I mean by that is to be proactive, control your own destiny, decide where you're going to make a business and take charge of yourself. Don't become reclusive and defensive and let someone else take control of your life. Now, what that means sometimes is you'll get yourself in trouble because there's some times when you probably should have sought some permission. But if your intentions are right and what you're bringing to the party is right and your moral and your values are right, you'll usually get forgiveness. And by taking that initiative, you'll always able to be able to have a make, a, make an impact and make a difference in the world. And if you're not making a difference in what you're doing, I would just say, go find something else to do where you can make a difference. Wow, thank you for that. And now to close, a final fun question we like to ask all of our guests is about their hot take, a strong personal opinion that maybe not everyone agrees with. What would be your hot take? Well, hot takes are a new concept for me. So I've never really, you know, found myself in the mode of hot takes. So fortunately, you know, I did a little work to try and figure that out. So I'm going to, I'm going to try one out on you. And, um, and it's one that's, you know, sort of relevant to, to McCombs and things. So my hot take is, Matthew McConaughey will not run for governor, despite what he may be saying now. We're going to keep him as our lead ambassador, you know, for the 40 acres and um, continue to have him um, be the best looking guy in uh, in burnt orange around town. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. And thank you for being on with us this morning, um, Professor Malcolm, and, there you go. For, <laughs> and for sharing with us some words of wisdom and a lot of your expertise. And we loved getting to chat with you and really appreciate the time you spent with us. Well, thank you. I enjoyed the um, the chance. You know, all old guys like me uh, find it very easy to talk about their passions and what they do. So thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to Business Unraveled, where we share not just the successes, but also the struggles of the business journey. Thank you for your support, and a special thank you to our team, Yai Ding, Sarah Ugangavelli, Nicholas Cow, and Chris Wang for the production of this episode. To stay connected with us, follow our Instagram at This Is Unraveled and leave us any comments or suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.